Well, we're coming today to the end of the book of Philippians. So we're right um, in the last few verses, and we'll be reading those just in a moment. You might expect, you know, when, when you finish a letter off, what do you normally put at the end? I'll say an email. You normally round off with something easy, don't you? You know, let's hope we, we get to chat soon, something like that. What does Paul do? Well, in typical Pauline fashion, he starts talking about money and contentment and all kinds of other difficult things. So if you've got your Bible with you, we're in Philippians chapter 4, and I'm starting to read at verse 10, and I'm going to read right the way through to the end. It's on page 1116, if you've got one of the Bibles in front of you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, but I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving, receiving, except you only. But even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that he credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Aphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All the Lord's people here send your greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray, shall we, as we look at those verses together. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for all that you've been showing us through this letter to the church in Philippi. I want to thank you that you have reminded us once again that our faith in you needs to be earthed in reality and that putting our trust in you impacts the way that we live our daily lives. And Lord, you call us on that road of discipleship. You call us to lifelong fellowship and walking with you. So Lord, I want to pray for each of us here this morning that as we round off this book today, that you will keep us going. Keep us in that deeper relationship with you so that more and more people may see in us you and turn their lives around to follow Jesus. Lord, for your glory we ask it. Amen. I don't know if you ever sit at home and have a look around and think for a minute, what is all this stuff? Do you ever do that? If you don't, I challenge you, go home, sit on your sofa, look around and just think, what is all this stuff? Yeah, you look, there's a room there, it's not in our house, that room, but there's pictures on the walls, there's a desk, there's various, there's lots of chairs in there, actually. There's a TV or a computer screen, there's just stuff, clutter, everywhere. 
And you know, it's funny, isn't it? Stuff of life can easily get a grip on us. We can get gripped by random objects that somehow seem to take a hold on us. We moved over here, as many of you know, in August, and um, we came with a truckload of stuff, literally. There was a huge removal van full of our stuff, and it came over the Pennines, followed us over. We arrived first, and the, the manse was totally empty. There was nothing in it. And then our stuff started to arrive. And you know what? As soon as our stuff came in, what happened? It felt like home. Weird, isn't it? Have you ever thought how weird we are as human beings? That these strange objects that we fill our life with, whether it's pictures or ornaments or goodness knows what else, makes us feel at home. And if we're not careful, we start to be defined by the stuff that is round about us. What do we need to buy stuff? Money. What do most people, I'll say most people, what do a lot of people think is the most important thing in life? Making money so you can buy more stuff, so you can feel like you can treat yourself, so you can make yourself feel important, so you can look round your house and think, this stuff defines who I am. We're strange, aren't we? We really are strange. But as we've gone through the letter of Philippians, we've seen time and time again that actually Paul sees a bigger vision of what life is about. He wants us to look up, he wants us to look out, he wants us to look at Jesus, and he wants us to be defined by something far more exciting than just the stuff that we see round about us. And as we've gone through Philippians, we've seen that Paul is very much in partnership with this church in Philippi. Paul sees his relationship with this church, with these people, as a partnership in the gospel. They support one another in prayer, they're united in Christ. But this is a very unique church for Paul. This is a church that's been supporting Paul financially. In fact, it's the only church Paul has told us there that he's been allowing to support him in this way. And these last verses start to unpack something of the nature of what's been going on. But in telling us about this, Paul gives us a bit of a glimpse into his view of materialism and where we find contentment. Question for you. Are you content? Just think about your life at the moment. Are you content with the stuff you have, with those strange objects that you fill your house with, that I fill my house with? Let's broaden it out a bit. Are you content in your relationships? Are you content with your career? Are you content with your life at college? Are you content with what your pension's paying you? Are you content with your retirement? Are you content with your hobbies? Let's lump it all together. Are you content? Is that something you experience? Contentment is a very slippery, subjective type of word. And Paul's point here is that he has found contentment whether or not he has the kinds of stuff that we often fill our lives with. Now, my experience in my own life is that I can sometimes lose contentment when I take my eyes off Jesus and I start looking around at other people and I see what they have and I start wanting it and I start feeling envious and I start feeling jealous, and I start spiralling down, and I start looking away from Jesus, and before long, I've lost that kind of contentment and joy and delight that only the Lord can bring. When I was 17, I passed my driving test, and my parents, very kindly, had um, saved an old car for me to drive in once I'd passed my test. Do you want to see a picture of it? If you're 17 or 18 at the moment and you're learning to drive, pity me having to drive this thing. 
This was a 1986 Hyundai Pony. It wasn't actually this one. I couldn't find a picture of the exact car, but this one somebody had abandoned by the side of the road and left it. That is the best thing to do with a 1986 Hyundai Pony. But when I first learned to drive, this was my everything, this car. Now, it was silver. Well, it was silver and brown. There was so much rust down the sides that it was kind of two-toned. Inside, it had fake blue leatherette seats. You know, what could be nicer than that? But it gave me a sense of contentment because I was the first one in my friendship group who had a car that I could use all the time. And so I was the one who would give everyone lifts. I was the one who, if I said, do you fancy going out to the beach? Do you fancy going into Manchester? Do you fancy doing this, that, or the other? I had this heap of a car that I could take people around in. But you know, by 18 months later, I was totally discontent and ashamed of this car. I had a friend whose parents graciously and kindly bought them a brand new car. I had other friends who'd managed to buy far less embarrassing cars than this one. And I just got to the point where I didn't want to be seen in it. You know, I didn't have much street cred as a teenager, but what little I did have was totally eroded by this heap of metal. So what did I do? I saved up. I started to work. I saved up. And eventually, I got to the point where I bought, my something, bought myself a car that was less embarrassing. But that is the story of life, isn't it? We are content for a bit with material things, and then the goalposts start shifting, and we move them along the road, and we start to think, I'm no longer content with this because of X, Y, or Z, and I want something more. And we can go on in life wanting more and more and more. But Paul starts to shift our focus. Don't let yourself be defined by stuff. Don't let ourselves find contentment in the things that will never bring contentment in our lives. I think what Paul is showing us here is that his contentment is actually a byproduct of life lived out, focusing fully on Jesus, worshipping him, full dependency on Christ. You know, when we know the peace of God that we talked about last week, the rejoicing in our hearts, when we know that we're loved and accepted by Christ, when we know that we have an eternity in him, when we keep our eyes on that and don't get distracted, then contentment is a byproduct of that. It's not the thing we're going after. We're going after Jesus. But it comes as a byproduct. See, Paul will not be boxed in by money. He won't allow stuff to define him. Verse 11. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. When we first got married, um, Claire and I were both working. We both had good jobs, we're both earning reasonable amounts of money, and we were okay financially. About five years later, within the space of 12 months, um, Claire had given up work to look after Timothy. I got a new job down in Bristol, and we moved down there. And I remember a couple of weeks after we'd moved down there, I remember it to this day, sat in um, a cafe in, in, in a garden outside having lunch. And we thought, it was, this was lovely. I don't know, has anyone been to Bristol? Yeah, quite a few people. We, we lived in a place called Long Ashton, if anyone's been there, near the suspension bridge. Beautiful, beautiful place. And we sat there thinking, isn't this lovely? You know, the sun was shining, everything's fantastic. And this is the kind of thing we, we'd done in life. We'd go out, we'd treat ourselves to a meal out every now and again. Then I happened to look at the bank balance in the week. And I realized that I hadn't done my sums quite well enough. The move was costing far more than we thought. And we were nearly out of money. There was two weeks left in the month. The next few years for us were going to be really, really tight. 
those things that had been luxuries now became sort of standard things in life. The, the, sorry, the other way around. The standard things became luxuries. The luxuries, things like going on holiday, going out for meals, those kind of things, they just had to go out the window. We couldn't afford to do them. And life became very different materially. And it was a real challenge. You know, where was my focus? Was my focus on Jesus? Was our focus on a family, on who we were in Christ? Or was it on our buying power to try and buy ourselves that feeling that we mattered or were special somehow? And so our priorities shifted. Our priorities shifted to actually having to clothe ourselves, to feeding ourselves, to heating our house. And the other stuff went out the window. Was that poverty? Absolutely not. In no way, shape, or form. You know, we still had food. We still had a roof over our heads. We still had a car, and it wasn't a high-end pony. <laughs> we still lived in a warm house. In a warm house. But Paul had, left, had lived in poverty. He had lived wanting for the stuff of this world. He had lived hungry. I don't suppose many of us have ever experienced poverty in that kind of way. Not in our, our lives here. But this morning, you know, we've watched that, that DVD. We've seen some of the clips from around the world of people who do live in real poverty. People who are defined by their poverty. Last Monday, um, Darren and I went to the Oasis Centre in Gorton to have a look um, at what they, what they do over there. And I think most of you know what the Oasis Centre does, but if you don't know what it does, um, they're a centre in the middle of Gorton where, where people can come who have um, really sort of hit rock bottom in life. And the centre offers them support, both immediate, you know, feeding people, clothing people, those kind of things. But it also offers them programmes for sort of getting their life back on track. And it's a place that as a church we've, we've been supporting and, you know, helping them in all kinds of different ways. But what was really incredible for me was chatting to one particular bloke. This bloke had been homeless for a couple of decades, been sleeping on the streets, sleeping rough. Materially, he was in a place of poverty, totally broken in his life. But through the ministry of what Oasis had done, he'd found that his poverty was being transformed. His life was being rebuilt. But he'd also encountered the risen Lord Jesus as well. And he was baptised. And he was going on in a life of discipleship. He was baptised five years ago. So it was just an incredible testimony to hear what God is doing. Lifted out of material poverty and spiritual poverty. But it is so sad, isn't it, that so much of our world is defined by poverty. And I don't think we can look at what Paul is here, Paul is saying here without sort of touching on this just a bit. In our towns, in our cities in the UK, there are people queuing up at food banks because they simply haven't got food to eat. We are not immune in our community, in our country, from poverty. What does the Bible say? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You know, if we have and we don't give, we're part of the problem, not part of the solution, aren't we? If we have, yet we don't love, we're part of the problem. You know, we are called to give to the poor and needy. The church in Philippi had just done that to Paul. Paul was in need, and they had given to him. We see, Paul had also experienced the other side 
he'd also experienced being in plenty. Just yesterday, um, we went into Manchester. Timothy wanted to go to the Imperial War Museum. So we, we went in on the tram. We went to um, the Media City and all around there. And then we'd finished by about half two. So we thought, oh, let's go into the city centre Manchester. And we went through the Arndale Centre. And I think it was Claire. Was it you who said, let's go through Selfridges? Yeah. <laughs> let's go through Selfridges. So we went out through Selfridges. Now, normally when we go into a department store, Claire is there spraying herself with perfume, you know, sort of the, the free perfume for the day. But actually, my, my, my eye was caught by um, a jumper. Now, I am not particularly clothes-driven. Normally, I have to be dragged to buy new clothes. But I like the look of this jumper. So I said to Claire, that looks nice, doesn't it? So we went over and looked at it. And Claire looked at the price tag and nearly fainted. Because it was £480. Now, if I was spending £480 on clothes, I would want a new wardrobe and the wardrobe to put the clothes in. I don't know whether this was hand-knitted by the Queen or something, but what really struck me was the contrast. Three miles away from Gorton, I was in a shop where a very plain, simple jumper was costing £480. You know, we live in a world of staggering injustice, don't we? We live in a world where wealth and poverty will sit next to one another. And, you know, our cry must be, Lord, would you use us to do something in that situation? Lord, would you use us? You know, it's so encouraging to hear this morning what, as uh, we were talking about in Bangladesh, and how, you know, Lottie and Molly are sort of looking at ways of doing something practical. Let's get behind them. You know, this is God's call for us, isn't it? But Paul has experienced both these situations. He's known what it has been like to have things. He's known the plenty. He may not have shopped in the first century equivalent of Selfridges. Very much doubt he had done. But he won't be defined by his plenty, and he won't be defined by his poverty. For him, having much or having little will not define him. He won't be boxed in by material stuff. He won't be closed in by it. He won't lose his contentment in Christ when it is taken away. But you see, poverty here isn't painted as super spiritual. And wealth isn't portrayed here as somehow a blessing from God, as some parts of the church would like to suggest it is. Both are just human conditions. But actually, contentment is found somewhere very different. And this is a pattern that we've seen time and time again as we've gone through the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, Paul told the church their partnership in the gospel was not based on whether he was with them or not. It was based on Jesus. He also told them that the advancement of the gospel was nothing to do whether he was in prison or whether he was free. It was based on Jesus. You're getting the, the pattern here. Chapter 1, verse 21, that verse that is so important in this letter. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Even the very breath in his lungs will not define who Paul is. Only Jesus gets to define him. Living means Christ, and dying means Christ. Basically, for Paul, he will not be boxed in, hemmed in, restricted, or defined by human categories or thinking. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly challenging. To have this image of this person who will not be defined by the things that we want to use 
to define one another. Providing he is in Christ, providing Christ is his goal, what does he say? I found the secret of being content. So how do we find contentment in Christ? Well, I'd like to suggest that the worst thing we can do is try and make this a law. I must be content. If you start doing that, you will fail miserably time and time and time again, and it will beat you up and make you feel awful. Turn your eyes on Jesus, and contentment is the byproduct of that. Fix our eyes on him, and things change. Verse 13, it says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. There's a very famous psalm, Psalm 23. A psalm that we sing, a psalm that is read, a psalm that is probably one of the few parts of the scriptures that still resonates with the wider culture in the UK. How does it start? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want, or whatever translation you happen to want to use. Do we believe that? If God is my everything, then actually the other stuff, I won't be in want. Because Christ is my all in all. So, Christ, so Paul has given us his experience of contentment in Christ. And now he'll move to some practical outworkings of this. What does this look like? You know, a gift has been given and he can't ignore it. So let's look at verses 17 and 18. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payments and even more. I am amply supplied. Don't know about you, but that reads to me a bit like a receipt. Sounds a bit blunt by itself if we read it in isolation. Sounds very businesslike. He's just sort of saying, thank you for the gift. Received in full. And then he moves on. But again, actually what Paul is doing here, he's saying, yes, it's great that I've received this gift. But I won't be defined by it. I won't be defined by it. I will not be bought. I will not be owned by the church. I will not feel obligated to them. What defines you this morning? What defines me? What are you defined by? Have you become boxed in today through financial concerns, through material worries, through the things of this world? Now, I'm not saying forget all that stuff. You know, the Bible tells us to be good stewards. The Bible doesn't tell us to ignore the world. But as it started to define you, as it started to become that kind of burden that is stopping you from rejoicing in who you are in Christ. Are we held by it? Or are we free in Jesus? Paul won't be defined by this gift or by anything other than Christ. But what he does now, in an incredibly gracious way, he starts to thank the church for what they've given him. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 18. This is talking about their gifts. He points it all back to God. won't take the credit for himself. points it back to God. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. God loves it when we're generous. God delights in a cheerful giver. God loves it when we give out of what we have to other people when we give to see the kingdom of God grow and the good news shared. Someone once said to me that conversion happens in different stages. They said, first of all, it starts in the mind. 
No, our mind says Jesus is Lord. And we start to accept um, a different worldview. And then what happens is it sort of sinks down into our hearts. When we, we start to feel something of the experience of being known and accepted by Jesus as the Holy Spirit does a work in us. Then it starts to affect our wills. You know, we start to act differently. We start to do different things in our life, different priorities. And eventually, it descends into our wallet. And our money and our things eventually are converted. If you want to know what I'm really about, you can read my bank statements. Well, actually, you can't read my bank statements. (laughs) But if you did read my bank statements, you would start to see those things that really do matter. Matter to me, matter to us as a family. You'd see those strange things that I spend money on. I think, why do you spend money on those? You'd see those things that we, we support, those, those um, Christian organizations that mean something to us. Because it's actually practically worked out. You know, do we delight, do you delight today in giving to the work of the Lord? Do you delight in that this morning? Is our discipleship reaching into our wallets and our bank accounts? Do we hold our stuff openly? Because actually our contentment isn't found in it. And say, God, do with this what you will. If you want me to give it, I'll give it. If you want me to have it, I will keep it. As we work through Philippians, you know, we've seen time and time again that reorientating our life towards Jesus actually involves practical change. It actually involves grace being lived out. Fixing our eyes on him means that we will choose not to be defined by other things. Not by our money, not by our status, not by other Christian leaders, not even by the life breath in our bodies. So as we bring this book to a close, I want to leave us with a few questions from the book of Philippians. Firstly, that one that we've been asking today, what defines you? What defines you and your life today? Are you defined by stuff? Are you defined by your job? Are you defined by the things you have? Or are you defined and content in Christ? Paul has asked us all kinds of difficult questions, hasn't he? He's asked us to put aside grumbling, to stop being anxious, to start looking at the Lordship of Christ in our life. You know, for for Paul, Jesus is Lord is not a song title, but it's a reality that needs to be put into practice. It's a reality that needs to be worked out. So just a few questions to finish off. I think this seems to have stopped working. Oh, I'll tell you what the questions are. Just keep an eye on the the screen. seems to have seized up. Are we committed in ourselves to a life of deepening discipleship? For Paul, you know, discipleship is something lifelong. Are we serious about that? Are we serious about a life of discipleship? You know, perhaps today you're thinking, well, yeah, I do want to go on with Jesus. Will you join a small group? Will you be part of a prayer triplet? Will you be somebody who looks to have somebody mentor you? Just practical things that we can do. Now it's going absolutely crazy, isn't it? There we go. Some questions. Are we committed to a life of deepening discipleship? Is that something that you're passionate about? Are you passionate about going on with the Lord? And thirdly, this key verse in Philippians, is it true for us as it was for Paul? To live is Christ, 
to die is gain. Just in a few moments, we're going to sing a song that I haven't sung for years called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And I can't remember the next bit. And the things of, that will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Will you do that today? Will you turn your eyes to Jesus, the one who will define us, the one who will bring us contentment, the one who will hold us now and for eternity? Can I pray for us? And then we'll sing together. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for all the encouragements of this book. I want to thank you that when you call us, you call us to life in all its fullness. And I want to pray for those of us who are perhaps challenging with what defines us as people. Help us to find our our full self because we are known by you. We're your forgiven people. At the cross, you died for us. You rose again. You've given us the hope of eternity. Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done for us. Help us to turn our eyes to you. Lord, by your spirit, would you do something fresh in our hearts this morning? Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In his name we ask it.